if you're tuning in for the first time, I'm Paul Sheehan and I teach 20th century literature and film at Macquarie. The title of this talk refers to human experience as per the HSC directive. But there are two kinds of experience in particular that are fundamental to Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible. In the first instance, desire of various kinds is at the heart of the play. Physical desire for two of the characters, but also various other desires um, for land, for retribution, for justice, and so on. And second, there is corruption, whether it be applicable to those on the side of the law or to those who give in to desire. No one ends up happily by the final scene. Almost everyone is either corrupted through rising hysteria and pa paranoia or they're doomed. Incidentally, this is the edition of the play that I'll be referring to, the Penguin Classics edition from 2003. Any page numbers that you see on my slides will be referring to this particular edition. I wanna start then with the notion of belonging, which is really the recognition that as John Donne, the 17th century poet once wrote, no man is an island. Each of us in some way is dependent on others for community, for social interaction, for our sheer survival. Each of us then cannot help but belong to something more than just our individual selves. All well and good, you might think, but this is not without its problems. Two major ones, in fact. The first occurs when someone else decides where or to what you belong and tries to impose a particular label or identity on you. And related to this is a second problem. Just as no man is an island, we might say that no concept, no idea, no view of something stands alone self-sufficiently. In other words, with the notion of belonging comes the notion of not belonging. Again, we may choose not to identify with something, not to belong to a group or community, or that choice may be taken away and made for us by someone else. And when it is taken away from us, that is when not belonging is not something freely chosen, but is forced upon us, we're in the realm of exclusion, expulsion, segregation, oppression, and other forms of injustice. So belonging, because it doesn't stand alone, because it's also tied up with not belonging, creates an inside-outside mentality, those who do belong versus those who don't. The phrase, you don't belong here, is a form of abuse, one of the cruelest things you can say to another person. It's an attack on their sense of identity, the sense they have of themselves, and their ability or their right to be a part of something bigger than themselves. All of these questions arise in the crucible, belonging as something that's both a given and a choice, depending on who is appealing to it, and not belonging as a kind of political weapon, a technique for exerting power over certain individuals. We can see this lack of diversity in the way that Salem treats its outsiders. The most obvious outsider in the play is Tichiba, the black slave, whose home country is Barbados. Tichiba's presence in the play brings in the notion of contamination. When you introduce foreign elements into your community, you run the risk of contaminating the purity of that community. Yet places like Salem need people like Tichiba to work as slaves to do the kind of low level or menial labor that the townsfolk don't want to do themselves. Someone like Tichiba belongs to the community as, in effect, 
a laborer, a worker who sells her labor, but she doesn't truly belong as a person because of her racial and ethnic origins. In the play, we can see how the pendulum shifts. Tichuba is initially tolerated because of the work she carries out, the foreignness or outsiderness is therefore played down. But once the witch hunt begins, her foreignness becomes paramount and she's made into a scapegoat, someone who carries the blame for a community, someone who is very easy to demonize. Salem in 1692 is a very insular community, secluded, enclosed, inward looking. In other words, as we've just seen, it doesn't exactly welcome diversity. This brings us to the whole notion of place. We don't just belong to a family or to groups and organizations. We also belong to a place. Home is what signifies the form of belonging that is place. It's of the utmost significance then that the crucible takes place in Salem, Massachusetts. Salem was settled in 1626. 60 or 70 years before the events of play take place. The name is the variation of the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace and completeness, as well as hello and goodbye. It is then, Salem is then a settler society. And like all settler societies, it has strong attachments, not just to place in its abstract or symbolic dimensions, but also to land as something tangible and concrete attached to ownership. Nomadic communities obviously don't have this kind of attachment. Their relationship to the land is always provisional and always based on movement and change rather than settlement and ownership. Like other settler societies, such as Australia, the founders of Salem had to displace the land's previous owners or users, namely the Native American Indians. So for several centuries, up until 1626, Salem was a Native American village and trading center. In Act One, Abigail urges Betty and Mary to keep quiet about what they did and issues this threat. Let either of you breathe a word or the edge of a word about the other things and I will come to you in the black of some terrible night and I will bring a pointy reckoning that will shudder you. And you know I can do it. I saw Indians smash my dear parents' heads on the pillow next to mine and I have seen some reddish work done at night and I can make you wish you had never seen the sun go down. Now, we know that Abigail is prone to exaggeration, if not outright lying. So this reference to American Indians may or may not be based on fact. What's important is that the threat of violence and home invasion continues to hang overhead, even a couple of generations after indigenous dispossession. To this day, Salem is still known by its nickname, the Witch City. One of its public schools is known as Witchcraft Heights Elementary and police cars feature this logo of a witch on a broomstick. Tourism is an important part of Salem's economy. So rather than sweeping the events, the real life events of 1692 under the carpet and pretending they never happened, the town uses them as part of its character. <coughs> to come back to my earlier point, the land in 17th century Salem is tied closely with cultural identity, with the commonality that implies one more form of belonging. In Act Three, Giles Corey says, Thomas Putnam is reaching out for land. I have 600 acres and timber in addition. Later in the same act, Giles warns, if, Jacob, if Jacobs hangs for a witch, he forfeit up his property. That's law. And there is none but Putnam with the coin to buy so great a piece. The man is killing his neighbors for their land. Land is clearly 
highly sought after, even to the extent that someone like Putnam will support false accusations in order to increase his holdings. I want to move on now from place and land to context and to two related historical episodes in particular. Politicians over the ages have used the question of who belongs where as not just a social or governmental issue, but as a moral and or political one. 70 years ago in, or just over 70 years ago in America, the most threatening group of undesirables was not identified as such through race or class, but through ideological conviction. I'm referring here to communists who supposedly threatened America's freedom, much as terrorists are perceived as doing so nowadays. Soviet communism wasn't always seen in this light, of course. After all, its leader, Joseph Stalin, fought against Nazi Germany in the Second World War, as did America and the Allied countries. In a remarkably short space of time, Stalin went from being lovable Uncle Joe, hell-bent on stopping the Nazi advance, to a demonic dictator intent on taking over the free world. If you know anything at all about The Crucible, you'll know that its author, Arthur Millen, was inspired to write it because of what was happening in America in the late 1940s and early 1950s, something that went under the name of the Red Scare. It lasted until about 1957, and it was the fear, panic, and even hysteria in some quarters that America was being infiltrated by Russian spies who were out to contaminate the US with communist propaganda. It wasn't just a question of finding out who these spies were, however, and sending them back to from where they came. It was also the threat that their doctrine might actually change American hearts and minds and turn them away from what was then thought to be the true, the good and the right. So a committee of inquiry was set up in which people were coerced into confession, whether or not they were now or had ever been members of the Communist Party. Here's the cover of a comic book from 1947, the very start of the Red Scare, published by a church group in Minnesota. It was a huge success, reprinted several times, and it shows us how quickly communist phobia filtered down to popular culture. <clears throat> Indeed, if the Red Scare has a strong foothold in history, stronger than it might otherwise have had, it's because it affected the entertainment industry. Actors, directors, producers, and so on, who were thought to be sympathetic to communist ideals, were put on a Hollywood blacklist which made it almost impossible for them to get work. It was a form of persecution, in other words, and it drove some of them to their deaths. The Hollywood blacklist and the Red Scare were serious issues because they seemed to undermine what were thought to be key American values, freedom of expression, of belief, of political persuasion, and so forth. But this almost complete reversal of values, people being persecuted for what they thought rather than what they did, was made possible because of something else that defined the wider post-war climate. In the late 1940s and early 1950s, the Cold War got underway. Two world wars earlier in the century were hot wars. Countries had used soldiers and machines and weapons to force other countries to their knees. But after World War II, a different kind of warfare was being waged. Rather than actual fighting, it involved psychological manipulation, rumor, espionage, counter-espionage, and the unprecedented buildup of arms. The purpose of this buildup, this arms race, as it was known, was to intimidate the enemy. 
if they knew you had a military and te technological superiority, then they'd be less likely to attack you. The logic being that no one wants to start a war that they don't have a good chance of winning. In some ways, a cold war is more threatening than a hot war because it's not real. It deals with the hypothetical, the projected, the speculative. It's about possibility rather than actuality, and it can leave whole populations living in fear for decades, wondering if or when the end is going to come. At least with a hot war, you know when an armistice is signed and you can live your life in peace. With a cold war, there's no actual war in terms of invasions or bombings, but there's no actual peace either because the threat of war is always looming overhead. Now, what you've probably heard about Crucible is that Miller was inspired to write it because of the communist witch hunt. It was only a witch hunt in a metaphorical sense, of course, but it made Miller think of earlier occur occurrences of actual witch hunting, particularly the one in Salem that took place in 1692. What I'm saying then is that there would have been no communist witch hunt in America if it weren't for the Cold War. In the first place, the Cold War made it clear who the enemy was, namely Soviet empire and all it stood for, totalitarianism, atheism, expansionism, and so on. And of course, communism. But secondly, and just as importantly, the Cold War atmosphere meant that it became difficult to distinguish between the real and the hypothetical, between fact and conjecture. This is the ambience or the mood that Arthur Miller creates in The Crucible, where a small community is torn apart by stories, by fictions concocted to cover up some fairly minor misdeeds, which lead to ever more alarming and outrageous fictions with violent and tragic results. In the early parts of the play, we come to know Salem, learning about its mores and customs, and we can see what holds this community together. It's founded on common religious beliefs and hard work and moral rectitude. These, we might say, are the forces of belonging, the glue that makes the town a working social order. But the more we see of Salem, the more it becomes apparent that not only does it not welcome diversity, there are forces of separation and division forces that work to alienate the good people of Salem from each other. At the start of Act Two, there's a scene between Proctor and his wife Elizabeth in which Proctor describes the harvest that's soon to come and how they'll be able to benefit from it. But something's amiss and a direction tells us what that is. There is a pause. She's watching him from the table as he stands there absorbing the night. Her back is turned to him, he turns to her and watches her a sense of their separation rises. This is a pivotal scene as it shows the Proctor marriage starting to feel the strain from outside, from the accusations being made by the young girls. It's interesting too that Miller depicts this physically in terms of body language. So even though we're reading it written down, it's still in keeping with the cardinal rule of drama and that is show, don't tell. That sense of separation that Proctor and Elizabeth demonstrate is a sense that pervades the entire play. I want to suggest then that the forces of separation or division are four. In the first place, there is the division caused by spoken language, by the kinds of things that the townsfolk say to each other. As the play unfolds, a good 
a great deal of stock is put in opinion. As Paris says to Proctor in Act One, a wide opinions running in the parish that the devil may be among us, an opinion that, as it turns out, only Proctor is willing to correct. Opinion soon gives way to hearsay, to rumor, to forms of speculation and prejudice. Abigail raises this early on in Act One when she says to her uncle, the rumor of witchcraft is all about. I think you'd, be, you'd best go down and deny it yourself. All of this kind of hearsay works as a substitute for genuine knowledge. No one knows what is quite going on once the accusations start flying. So everything from unwitting misinformation to outright lies circulate among the community and people start believing what they hear. <clears throat> Second force of division is political. Salem may appear to be united in belief, but there are factions, parties and sects, different kinds of political conviction that divide the, the town along the lines of belief. The Reverend Paris realizes that he's not popular in the village and says, there is a party in this church, I'm not blind, there is a faction and a party. And in a sort of afterword to the play, Echoes Down the Corridor, Miller says that even 20 years after the last execution, the factionalism was still alive. The third force of division is legal, suing, litigation and writs, citizens using the law to alienate themselves from other citizens. Charles Corey points this out in Act One. Wherefore is everybody suing everybody else? Think on it now, it's a deep thing and dark as a pit. I have been six times in court this year, to which Proctor replies, is it the devil's fault that a man cannot say you good morning without you clapping for defamation? And the scene ends in an uproar with Thomas Putnam explaining, exclaiming, I'll have my men on you, Corey. I'll clap a writ on you. And the fourth force of division, the one that is at the root of all the forces of language, politics, and law, is the force of morality. Miller says in one of his commentaries in Act One that Ours is a divided empire in which certain ideas and emotions and actions are of God and their opposites are of Lucifer. By insisting on this opposition, God versus Lucifer, we are effectively contributing to our own alienation. And what the crucible demonstrates is the end point of that alienation, the transformation of a functioning village community into something to which nobody belongs. Finish up now, let's go back to the saying with which we began, no man is an island. What we've just seen taking shape throughout the whole play is a kind of counter proposition. No community is one. No community is ever fully entirely united for the simple reason that people are different. One of the problems with belonging is not just that there might be too little of it, when not everyone is willing to work for the common good, but also that there might be too much of it, which is to say when belonging is transformed into conformity and a crisis of difference ensues. It's all very well to belong, but in doing so, we need to retain some sense of our differences from our fellow men and women, i.e. belonging cannot be absolute. Differences are what a community needs to acknowledge and accommodate to keep it healthy and thriving cultural differences, sexual and racial differences, political and religious differences.
to eliminate or even just to elide differences in the name of belonging is to create an atmosphere of resentment, frustration, disappointment, animosity, and so on. Conformity is the name we give to the suspension or deferral of differences and conformity, blind, unthinking adherence to the same is ultimately destructive to the spirit of free, open community. The crucible is then, uh, as I've suggested, a play based on desire. It's also about denial of that desire and about how the two, desire and denial, always go together. There's no desire without there also being disapproval or suppression of that desire. Now, this is not necessarily a bad thing. If we all acted on our desires, civilization couldn't exist. We'd be living as animals live in a state of nature, guided solely by instinct and by our fundamental urges for food, shelter, warmth, sex, and so on. To have a social order, there's a certain amount of restraint that goes along with it. I mentioned earlier that we have some idea of what Arthur Miller intended his play to address, the communist witch hunt, the bigotry and small-mindedness of certain of America's leaders and so forth. But The Crucible, like all works of art, goes far beyond just what its author intended. It could be seen today as a commentary on any number of other forms of intolerance, on genocide in Rwanda and ethnic cleansing in the former Yugoslavia in the 1990s, for example, when Giles Corey inadvertently condemns his wife for her enthusiastic book reading, the specter of Nazism rises up and the rituals of book burning that try to strike a, try to strike a blow at European modernism. And a bit closer to Miller's home, there's the so-called War on Terror, in which, uh, sorry, which in the early years of this century gave the West other peoples to simultaneously fear and demonize. The idea seems to be, if only can, we can weed out these potentially foreign elements, then the community can be preserved. The problem is the, in the weeding out and deciding who really belongs and who doesn't. So to reiterate the point one more time, the crucible shows us cogently how the logic of belonging can easily be turned away from inclusion towards exclusion, from caring for and protecting one's neighbors to persecuting and denouncing them, from a healthy pluralism to a crippling conformity. Concept of belonging, in other words, has a lot to answer for. Okay, and that's where I'm stopping the talk. Uh, we have a few minutes still on this recording. Uh, if anyone has any questions, I'm happy to address them. Questions about the play, uh, about anything I've said in the lecture. How do you think that Mary Warren fits into the various allegories the author is intending to, um, yeah, I, I forgot the word. Mary Warren, sorry, you there? Oh yeah. Um, how do you think Mary Warren fits into the sure. messages the author is trying to uh, yeah, okay. distribute? Which of her actions in particular are you thinking of? Um, well, I'm just thinking of her as a character because she seems to uh, 
I believe in the play somewhere they mentioned that she doesn't have much of a will of her own. Mm-hmm. Like how she uh, seems to sort of bounce between sure. Abigail's yeah. side and Proctor's side yeah, yeah, yeah. of the argument. Well, I guess she stands for, I mean, the way I've outlined it uh, in the lecture is that the forces of division come about from definite beliefs and the clash of those beliefs. Um, so I guess Mary's vacillation would be a kind of lack of belief and how that can be politically and morally damaging just as well, just as much as those who fervently believe in certain things, okay? It's the indifferent that we have to fear. I mean, I'm sure this was um, foremost in Arthur Miller's mind, is the, the notion of indifference, right? The communist witch hunts in America could not happen if people had not allowed it to happen. And the people allowing it to happen are not necessarily vehemently anti-communist people. They're just people who think, well, that doesn't really concern me. I'm, it, it's not going to affect me. So, you know, why should I protest against this? Why should I um, rise up against the leaders if, if it's, you know, if my life is going to continue unimpeded either way? So I guess it's indifference as... Uh, being potentially something that can also be a kind of political weapon by those who want to uh, push something through or or um, inaugurate something that is actually going against certain mainstream values. Does that answer your question, Rory? Uh, yes, it does. Thank you. Okay, anyone else? We've still got a couple of minutes. Okay, we'll leave it there. Um, there's still two or three more enrichment sessions uh, running this afternoon, so I hope you'll tune into one or more of those. Otherwise, uh, thank you all for your attention and uh, good luck with your HSC.